Well, good morning. Uh, well, we have, um, I think it's pretty easy to assume over the last few years that we've had an increase in hostility against the Christian faith right now. I'm not, I'm not trying to fear monger. I'm not here that like everybody, you know, the, the, every conspiracy theory out there, the world's out to get Christians or anything like that. But I think, I mean, if we look at how it was to be a Christian in this country 30, 40 years ago versus now, I think we could at least all agree that it's harder, right? Where the scale of that falls, we can kind of have debates. Some people think we have zero freedoms. I tend to think when you look at Christianity over the course of history, we actually still are enjoying some of the greatest levels of, of freedom that are out there relative to the, the cycle of history. Uh, but it's, it's under attack. And, and it's important to remember that there's always been, as far as, as long as humanity has existed, there's been a pushback against God in some way, shape, or form. Right? There's never been a time in history where the whole world unitedly looked at God and said, yes, I, am, I can get behind that. He is real. He exists. He is the, the Lord of my life and the God of the universe. There's always been a pushback. And, and when we think about over the years, the way that, that society and culture and various countries and empires has pushed back against God, um, in recent history, in modern history, one of the most used phrases that you will hear when it comes to this is, a loving God would never insert your, your blank, right? Whatever your thing that you are mad that God would do is, that's what you're going to kind of butt up against. So a loving God would never let a loved one die. A loving God would never, for instance, uh, you know, tell me who to love. A loving God would never allow so much violence and hate to exist in the world. The fact that we have wars that never seem to end, that don't have an explanation, that are about selfishness and, and all kinds of different things, whether you want to think that it's about oil or whether it's about territory or whether it's about all kinds of other goods like money or whatever, right? A loving God can't exist in a world that is like that. And so because the world is a mess and because we have all these things, what happens is we, we discredit God in the world by one of two ways. We say either A, God can't be loving, right? He has to be a vengeful, hateful, vindictive God who is all-powerful and is causing the chaos of this world. Or if he's not if, he's, if he is, in fact, loving, then he can't be all-powerful. Because if he truly was a fully loving God, then he wouldn't allow these things to happen. Right? So he's either powerless to stop them, or he's a mean cuss who's wanting to make them happen. Those are kind of the options that we get. And it's a compelling argument. It really is. When the world comes at you with that, it's hard. Because the world is a messy place. It's not a pretty place to be. Right? And so... All right. I don't know what happened there. Let, let, it, let it run, because we have to have lights. So, yeah, just let it run out. You can, you can hear me, so it's okay. When we see this idea of a loving God, <clears throat> all right, and we see the idea of an all-powerful God, it's really hard to juxtapose those things together because somehow one has to be untrue if the other is true because there are so many things that we see happening in the world today that God is not going to be okay with and so what happens is the world will start to say God cannot love me 
with all the things that I see happening. Whether that's a global thing like wars or a personal thing like loss or a God who starts to tell me what to do. Right? Those are the issues that we face. This morning, we're going to look at a passage that, that solidly fits this a loving God would never category. If you remember, we're, we're in a series called Problematic Passages. And so for the next, I think, six more weeks we have, we're looking at passages submitted by you, the congregation. So every passage that we talk about has been submitted by somebody or multiple people here. This one came through at least two or three different folks. Uh, it seems the popular uh, arguments uh, to, to, to tackle. And we're going to look at the hard passage and kind of see what the Lord is doing and why it's in Scripture, because we believe kind of the theme verse of 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for training in righteousness. And so this morning, we're looking at Deuteronomy 7, and we're asking the question, is God a God who is genocidal? Deuteronomy 7, as well as some other passages in Scripture, are about God telling the Israelites to wipe out entire people groups. Leave no one alive. Completely obliterate everything, it seems. And so when you read these passages, it starts to become kind of uh, confusing because you think, well, God is a God of love. Anytime I've gone to a church, it talks about how loving Jesus is and how it's a gospel of love and forgiveness and, and care. And so how do we reconcile that with a God who seems to just wipe out everything in his path? Right? So let's, let's look at the passage as we always do in isolation, and then we'll kind of start to build our way out and see if we can't make sense of what's going on here. Right, let's stand together as we read from God's word. This is Deuteronomy 7, uh, initially verses 1 through 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, And you shall show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved Images with fire. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. It's harder to respond to certain parts of Scripture, isn't it? Some of the verses we read, we go, "Is praise be to God." I'm not. I'm not so sure. So it's not difficult to see why a lot of folks have a problem with this passage, right? God is talking to the Israelites in the context of of, of entering the Promised Land, and there's all these nations that are occupying that land. And He says, "When you go in, listen. Every one of them, and He lists the seven nations." They're all mightier than you on their own. Every one of them is bigger than you, mightier than you, more powerful than you by like a lot, a mile. Like this is David and Goliath kind of stuff, right? But when you go, I'm going to give them over to you. You're going to have victory. And when you have that victory, I want you to completely annihilate them from existence on this earth. Don't leave anyone alive. Take no prisoners. Like complete and utter destruction, right? And then not only that... 
but we're supposed to take the, the images. They're essentially their religious symbols. Their, their churches, their shrines, their altars, their, their icons, the things that they hold as idols, and you're supposed to destroy them too. Essentially wiping away the memory of their existence, both physically and in terms of religion. Right? If you do your job right, 20 years after this battle's over, no one's going to know that that culture or religion even existed. Completely obliterates off the face of the earth. The word that is used is haram, and it's actually used twice because we don't have punctuation marks in the Hebrew in the ancient language. And so what happens is when you want to emphasize something, you say it twice. So if you looked at the Hebrew of this passage where it says complete destruction, it says haram haram, which is from the word harem, which today we use to signify things like holy war. We talk about this a lot of times in the context of what we see in the Middle East happen. Right? We, we talk about holy war where there's a complete pillaging and a, a war on behalf of God that takes place. Now, we've hijacked the term in some ways today in modern times, and we'll, we'll get to that a little later. But there's no mistaking that the Lord here is saying complete and utter destruction. Right? This passage is saying what you think it's saying. God is commanding the Israelites to entirely wipe out whole nations, including all of their gods and idols that they hold dear. That creates a problem with the Christian at some level, right? We serve a God who commanded us to love our enemies. What do we do with that? Did, did God change his mind? Was there a, a God of the Old Testament and a different God of the New Testament, right? A lot of folks don't like to read the Old Testament because, well, that God was vengeance and, and wrathful and evil. And then somehow when Jesus was born, he, maybe he became a, a dad and got friendly and changed his mind. No, right? It's the same God both yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so we're going to look at this, this passage in context and what we'll do is we'll kind of work our way out, and then we'll start to see what things we can glean from this. Right? I'll give you a hint. The point of this passage is not that you should start preparing for harem warfare in this world. Right? And where you see modern-day instances of holy war happening, they are not condoned by Scripture. Right? There's no such thing today as a sanctioned holy war in which we go to battle Right? We use that language sometimes when we think about how we treat, how we engage with the culture. There's spiritual battles happening. But in no way is God calling us to have this type of a scenario unfold today in modern times. Right? So, this passage occurs within the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, the word Deuteronomy literally means second law or kind of repeated law. It's a repetition of the laws that the people have been given. The whole book of Deuteronomy is a sermon written by Moses to the people of Israel. Right? The Israelites, if you recall, were, were not a people group. They were just kind of multiplying. Abraham was promised descendants as numerous as the stars. Those descendants began to grow after Abraham's promise, and he was faithful to God. Then we get to the point where they enter in Egypt, and they multiply in numbers. We talked about how they got from where they were to Egypt, and the numbers become great. And then in Exodus, the Lord calls Moses to pull his people out of Egypt to save them from Pharaoh, right? Let my people go. And what happens is, as they grew to be numerous, they are already kind of God's people, but in, in Exodus, when the Lord pulls them out, he kind of cements them into a formal nation of, him, of his. Right? And he gives them the law. 
He says, look, here's, here's the law. And it's not just the Ten Commandments, but it's all the ceremonial kind of stuff that gets attached. When you read through Exodus and Leviticus, you start to see all of these cleanliness laws and food laws and all these things. They're designed to give the people of Israel a very distinct way of being, existing, looking to the outside world. Right? So when he says, don't eat shellfish, it's not because shellfish is somehow intrinsically sinful or dirty. But it's because, and we'll get to this passage in a couple of weeks, right? It's because the Lord has, there's people out there that are eating it, and he wants the people of Israel to be distinct from others. He wants them to look different, to think different, to act different, to appear different to the outside world. And so he creates himself this nation through all the laws, and then he says, I'm going to bring you to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And as they are on the precipice of entering that land, Moses gives them the book of Deuteronomy as a sermon, and the point of it is to prepare and to recap. Says, look, Israelites, you're about to enter that land that you've been promised. You need to remember where you've come from. You need to remember what God is calling you to, and you need to be ready so that when you get into the land, you enter as a people holy and set apart the way that God calls you to. So it's a, it's a where we've been, where we're going kind of book and letter. That's why there's a lot of repetition in the book of Deuteronomy. Much of, most of what you read in that book, you've already read in the first couple books of the Bible before you get there, right? And so it can feel repetitive, but we need to hear some of the stuff again. And so that's, that's the context into which we find this. They're about to enter the land, and so they've been made this, this holy people, and they are now about to go in to a land that has been reserved for them for hundreds and hundreds of years, this is important in the context of our passage because the decision of, of where they're going to be going is not on a whim, right? It's not like God has them wandering around and in his head he's thinking, God, where am I going to put these people? And then he's like, oh, you know, I created this great land over here. It's really lush and flowing with milk and honey, but these annoying nations are there. I guess I'll just have them wipe them out of the way to make room for the... No, the land that they're going to that is occupied by all of these nations has been promised to them since before Abraham. Right? Abraham comes before he ever develops into a great nation. In Genesis 15, the Lord says, I'm going to take you to this land. And he starts to actually list some of the nations that we just read in Deuteronomy 7. He says, this is the land where they are. And they're going to be destroyed. But here's, here's a key, and we'll get to this later. They're going to be destroyed, but God, God isn't, they're not quite ready yet. Their sinfulness hasn't reached full fruition. We have to understand something really important before we dig deeper into this passage. Whatever God is doing in Deuteronomy 7, it's not genocide. Right? The, the, the term, is God genocidal, is something that people have, have kind of cooked up because it's a very easy way to discredit God. Because when God starts wiping out entire nations, we, we call him genocidal, and all of a sudden he's the evil one. Kind of the same way when you start to have some opinions that are not culturally appropriate anymore in the world that we live in, you're called bigoted. Even though if you think about it, if someone asks you, do you feel like you're a bigot? You would say, well, no, I'm, I love people. But the Lord calls me to certain ways of living that are different from the culture. Right? And so a word and a label like bigot can automatically discredit a person very easily and quickly. And so people use genocidal, but here's the thing. Genocide is a very specific term that has very specific meaning, even in our world today, outside of biblical times. Right? Genocide is the, the strategic destruction of a, of a whole people group 
based on their ethnic, cultural, or religious background. So when we look at the Holocaust, the Holocaust was a clear genocide. The only reason for the mass murder of a whole bunch of Jewish people was because they were Jews. It wasn't because of something they did or something they did wrong or something they did different. They were targeted simply for being Jews. Right? Some of them you couldn't even distinguish from others. But if they had Jewish heritage, they were targeted. That's a clear genocide. What we have here is not a genocide. What we have here is the destruction of a, a large amount of nations and people groups based on two things and two things alone. Number one, geography. Right? They're, they're, they're destroyed based on the fact that they inhabit the promised land, and that land is promised to God's people, Israel. Right? And two, the, the basis of their destruction is judgment. It's really important to understand this. The people and nations that God is destroying or calling for the destruction of in Deuteronomy 7, they are not being destroyed on a whim. They're also not being destroyed because God hates those nations. Because we see those nations exist in Abraham's time, and the land is promised to Abraham, but God holds off on destroying them at that point because their sin is not yet complete. They haven't gotten to a point yet where they are deserved of complete destruction because they have gone so far against God. That doesn't happen until we get to Deuteronomy 7. And actually, it doesn't happen until we get to Joshua when the destruction, when this command actually is carried out. Right? And so what we see is the, the people, they're not destroyed in a genocidal or, or senseless fashion. They're destroyed as part of God's judgment upon them for what they are doing and what they are choosing to believe and how they are choosing to act and conduct themselves. These nations are in every way going against the ways of the Lord and the way that he has designed and ordained the created order to work. They are against God. They are the enemies of God by virtue of what they do, not of what their ethnicity happens to be. God here is not committing ethnic cleansing. God here is judging sinful people. That's really important for us to get straight before we ever get into it. Now, we can dispel the notion of genocide, but what we can't dispel is the fact that God still seems to be committing a whole lot of senseless violence. Right? And for that, we got to look a little deeper. Now, when we look at this passage, there's, there's, kind of, there's some theories as to what they mean. And there's a really great book out there. If you want to dig more into this, if you hear this sermon, you're like, I'm not satisfied. I want to read more. I want to recommend a book called Show Them No Mercy. It's four views on God and Canaanite genocide. And if you want, to, if you want that, I can write that down for you later, or you can go back to the live stream and scroll to this point and then write it, write it down. It's got a whole bunch of different authors arguing for different views. There's four views that are argued. One of them is kind of nonsensical. Uh, and just a cultural view, and so we're not going to deal with it today. But I want to take a look at the three other views about this passage that, that are kind of put forth to explain or try to rationalize Deuteronomy 7 for you. Number one, the Israelites recorded this event. It really happened, but they were mistaken in believing that God commanded it. So the first view of, of Deuteronomy 7 is, well, the Lord, it, the Lord doesn't really command them to destroy everybody, but they, they did it, and this event is kind of a, a stain on the history of the Israelite people in the same way that the Holocaust is a stain on the history of, of Europe, of, of, of Germany, right? When you think Germany, one of the first things you think is, is the Jews and Holocaust and Hitler and World War II, 
Right? That's one of the first things that comes to mind when you think of that country. So th this destruction really happened. God really didn't want it to happen. He didn't really command them to do it quite to that extent. And so throughout history, that's kind of a, a stain on, 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 their, on their history as, as biblical time unfolds. Right? The problem with that view is, is that, number one, God clearly in Scripture repeatedly commands this type of warfare. It's not just Deuteronomy 7. We can look at places like Deuteronomy 15. We can look at Deuteronomy 20. We can look at Joshua 6. And we can see there's, there's instances where the Lord calls for this multiple times over. It's really hard to read Scripture when we have the actual words of the Lord that, say, that says, when the Lord of God brings you in, right, I want you to devote them to complete destruction. Haram, haram. There's, there's really not another way that you can translate that. And so this first view, what it tries to do is it kind of tries to say, look, the Old Testament is full of sinful behavior right, that the Israelites have committed. It's, it's a book about how the Israelites never listen to God. They're eventually exiled for the fact that they don't obey the Lord. This is just one of those times where they, didn't, they did what the Lord didn't want them to do, and they destroyed a whole nation and people group. God didn't really mean wipe them out. Right? He meant defeat them, but not wipe them out. That's, that's the first. The second view kind of moves the needle a little bit in the right direction. It says this, God commanded this, but it was not really for all time, but it was only a very specific instance in a very brief moment of history, right? God did this or called for this to demonstrate his sovereignty over, over all the other gods that are out there, that he is the one true God. He established himself as, as the only real God by doing this. He, he protected his people from idols. He was worried that if those things remained, that they would somehow be tainted by the culture that remained if they weren't wiped out completely. And so it was this one-time necessary thing that is never to be repeated again. This type of judgment was was atrocious but necessary, kind of like a necessary evil type of argument, right? And this view is better, but it's not perfect because it doesn't, it doesn't try to sugarcoat the Lord's command, but it does lack in that it doesn't answer the predicament of love versus destruction, right? That view doesn't give us the answer of how can a God that says he's loving go to this level of destructive behavior in what he calls the Israelites to do? So view one is way off. View two is better, but not perfect. View three is this. It is sanctioned. It's an action that the Lord does command and approve and sanction as the start of a pattern in Scripture that leads ultimately to the final judgment in Revelation. There's a really famous commentarian, a, 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 a biblical scholar named Tremper Longwin. He holds this view uh, Tremper was one of the mentors of one of my seminary professors down at, at Trinity in Pittsburgh and, and a highly respected scholar. He argues for this view. He says, God, God commands this instance of judgment as a pattern for the entire biblical history and story. This account is a demonstration of God's cleansing of his creation, that which is not holy in his sight, in order to make room for that which is being made holy in his sight. Right? It's a preview of judgment further judgment to come. And it's a pattern that's set that we should expect to see over and over and over again. And here's, here's what he means by that. So God in this passage fights Israel's enemies because they are not holy. 
As we get further into Scripture, we see God fighting Israel itself because they're not holy. Right? We look at the times of exile in Assyria and Babylon. The Israelites are, are captured by foreign nations and brought into exile and suffer for years and years and years under oppressive rulers because they are not obeying the Lord and the Lord will not have people that are unholy. He's teaching them a lesson. He's trying to get them to come to a point of obedience. Eventually, Jesus comes and he fights against the demonic powers, the principalities of evil, right? And when he goes to the cross, he defeats evil in a sense. And when he comes again, he will come in a form of final judgment in Revelation when the Lord fights the final battle, right? This is a preview and a pattern-setting event for the way that the Lord operates within his created order. And I, I personally hold this view, and I hold it for a couple reasons. I think the entire entry of God's people Israel into the promised land is, is in a way a foreshadowing of our own Christian life and the pattern that we will follow. I think when the Lord brings his people Israel into the promised land, it's an echo of the time that we, as God's people, when we breathe our last and we spend time in eternity in the new heavens and the new earth in Jerusalem, we will enter the promised land ourselves. And it will be a land that is flowing with milk and honey, and it will be a land where there is no death or disease or evil or strife to be tolerated. It will be a land entirely holy, right? That's the promise of the Christian life, is there will come a day where on this world where there's all kinds of good and all kinds of evil, the Lord will deal with the evil. There is a final judgment that is to come. And there are people that will be a part of that judgment under Christ that will be with the Lord forever. And there is a people that will be judged that are apart from Christ that will spend eternity in hell. That's the reality of the biblical narrative. And so when we look at this story, this genocide, so to say, Right? This wiping out of nations in Deuteronomy, it's a small micro picture of what down the road we're going to see in the final judgment. Right? You might say, well, the Lord wiped all those people out. That's not fair. Well, the Lord is someday going to wipe away all evil from this world. And there are people that don't follow the Lord that someday will be judged for that lack of following the Lord, right? Every one of us is a sinner. And that's the other thing to think about when we look at this. You look at those nations and you say, well, there were civilians, there was women and children, did they deserve to die? The reality is if we believe that we're all sinners, then we believe we all deserve to die, right? If you woke up this morning, you experienced the immense grace of God because he didn't kill you in your sleep for being the sinner that you are. You live under grace because as a follower of Christ, his atoning blood purchased victory over sin for you. You don't get to live because you're somehow awesome. You get to live because Christ is awesome and intercedes for you. And so when we look at a passage like this, the whole entry into the promised land is a preview of the greater entry that we all get to experience someday. One more important thing is we have to understand the history of of those that are being obliterated, right? We talked about this already in Genesis 15, that God tells Abraham that they're going to be annihilated down the road. Their sin is not yet complete. These are a people that for hundreds and hundreds of years, from Abraham until this point, have defied the Lord. Right? And so this passage is really not about the Israelites at all. Right? They're not the main character of the story. 
This is a passage about the Lord and those who stand against him and the fact that he judges and condemns those who stand against him. The Israelites are simply the weapon, the tool that is used to carry out the sentence. This is a big difference in holy wars that we hear about today. Today what we hear is there's a lot of language of people fighting in the name of their God. What happens here is God fighting for Israel, not Israel fighting for God. The Lord is judging those nations, not because of their ethnicity, not because of who they are, but because of what they are doing, what they are thinking, what they are believing, how they have rebelled against the Lord. That's very different from a blanket genocide. Another thing to understand is that there is grace baked into Deuteronomy 7 that is hard to spot when we read it at first glance, but it's, it's definitely there. He commands the Israelites to completely destroy. And, and this is interesting when we read this. Here's what it says. When you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction, period. Then it says, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them. And you need to destroy all of their religious idols so that they can't keep practicing their religion. If they have all been devoted to destruction, well, who the heck would be left to intermarry? He's saying, hey, go in, kill every man, woman, and child, completely obliterate who they are in, in existence, and then when you've done that, make sure you don't intermarry any of them. What's going on here? Well, a couple things. Number one, the Lord knows that the Israelites aren't going to do this perfectly. Part of why we see throughout history that the, the, the nations that are mentioned end up being a pain in the butt to the Israelites throughout the Old Testament because they're not completely and utterly devoted to destruction. There's remnants that get to, that get to stay, right? And they do, in fact, intermarry throughout Israelite history. They do the very things that God told them not to do. And so God knows that they are not going to follow this command perfectly and that there's going to be some remnant there. And so he's gracious to an Israelite people that he knows won't listen perfectly. There, second, there's some significant potential kind of language and cultural differences in this passage that we kind of need to dig in a little bit, right? So let's just briefly kind of fly over them. Number one, the marching orders that are given here are primarily in the context of cities. And we think of today as cities as these population centers but cities in these days were more like military fortified outposts, right? A city was more about the, the military might of a nation than anything, right? There were centers and hubs for, for military activity, and so when you wipe out a city, it's like conquering a military base in today's modern time, right? And so there's some debate about kind of exactly the nature of this language, but what, one of the things we, we have to note is that when we hear them destroying a city, it's far more about military engagement, right? The second thing we have to understand is there's such a thing as ancient trash talk. And that might sound weird, but, but you understand it real easily. If you're a Cavs fan and you come the day after a, a nice little blowout game, what are some of the phrases that are used in the locker room? Man, we really annihilated them, right? We completely destroyed that team. Well, that team still exists, right? And, and annihilated might mean like 120 to 105, right? In basketball, anything more than like six points at the end is an annihilation, because really the only thing that matters is the last minute and a half, right? 
If you've watched the NBA in like the last 20 years, you could just skip until like three minutes left in the fourth, fourth yeah, right? It doesn't mean entire annihilation. So there's such a thing as kind of ancient Israelite trash talk too. And so this idea of utter destruction could, could be interpreted more as an utter military destruction rather than a full civilian destruction. Right? We, don't, we don't know for sure, but that, that's a possibility at least. Right? This is how the Israelites like to talk about war in absolute terms. We annihilated them. Well, obviously they didn't because there is a command not to intermarry, and so there are some people left. And so we can back off a little bit with the rhetoric of how destructive the Lord truly is versus how much grace tends to prevail. Right? When we look at the overall language that's used for how the Israelites and the Canaanites relate throughout the Old Testament, there's far more of a nature of driving out than murder. Right? They're driven from the land. You are to render them destroyed and pillaged so that they will know that I am the Lord. Right? So there are some linguistic nuances here that, that could potentially soften the blow of the passage quite a bit. I don't want to take that too far because I do think that the Lord is, is really judging and destroying whole nations in this passage. But, but we can back off the, the fear-mongering just a little bit when we look at the language and the culture of that time. Amen. All right. Finally, we need to take a long look at the Israelites themselves. It's important to understand the nature of God's preference for Israel over other nations. One of the things we like to do in Scripture is the Israelites are God's chosen people. And as we go, we tend to, in our head, get the idea that they are God's favorites. That somehow these are God's people and the others aren't. And we make it about this ethnic them versus us. And we see it even today. There's kind of a, like an ethnic Judaism that exists in the world today, right? Jewish, Jewish people in modern culture are very complex. Because if you have friends that are Jewish, one of the things you have to ask yourself before you do anything is, are they cultural Jews or are they religious Jews? Or both. And it's usually never a clean-cut distinction, right? You have friends that are cultural Jews that haven't been to a temple in like 30 years, right? Religion doesn't seem to be a part of them, but they are religiously identified. There's this, this strange intermingling, right, that we don't see with Christianity. Christianity is kind of a global faith that isn't right now in today's culture attached primarily to any ethnic type of group. Right? You have Asian Christians, you have uh, you know, Latin American Christians, you have Anglo-Saxon white Christians, you have European Christians, you have you know, Russian Christians, you have Eastern European Christians, you have African Christians. There's no like Christians is this ethnicity. Right? But with Judaism, it functions a little different. You can also have non-cultural Jews. There. And so there's this, this kind of weird way that Judaism works today that makes things complicated. But we have to understand something. The Lord picked the people Israel not by any merit of their own. And so when we look at the nations that Deuteronomy 7 seems to judge so harshly, and we say, well, what did they do to deserve the harshness? Why were the Israelites somehow better than them? The answer is they weren't better than them. Right? The Lord chose the people of Israel for no reason or merit of their own. As a matter of fact, if we continue to read through the Deuteronomy passage, if we keep going past verse 5, one of the things we encounter is God's explanation of this. Here's verse 6 through 9. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has put you, brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh and King Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The Israelites are chosen over the other nations, not because they're better, but because God just chose them. And so they don't get to have a superiority complex to the rest of the nations that are being judged. What they should be thinking is we, we could easily have been one of those nations. The Lord could have chosen the Jebusites as his people and condemned the other six nations and us, but he didn't. Well, why? Just because. The Lord chose them through no merit of their own because what the, what the Lord wants to do is he wants to have a people group that he chooses for no reason, for no merit that we can understand, just because, and that is who he's going to use within the world to display his glory to the rest of the world. And so he chooses them and he judges others. And it's not because of anything about who they are or who the Israelites are. It's done just because the Lord wants to have this people group display his glory. He wants to say, look, this is what it looks like to be my people. Creation has been stained by sin. There's evil in the world. There's wickedness. The, the creation is being used in ways that I didn't intend it to be used when I made the world. And so I'm going to create for myself out of nothing these people. I'm going to call them out from Abraham, descendants numerous as the stars, these slaves in Egypt who had no merit of their own. I'm going to pull them out. I'm going to give them a law that sets them up to be the way that things were supposed to be. If they followed the law to the letter, they would be living the way that I originally called the creation to live. They never do. And I forgive them, but this is supposed to be a display of God's goodness. And so the idea is that God is demonstrating to the world that holiness is only the only thing that is acceptable and pleasing in his sight. And everything else has to get out of the way. Right? Deuteronomy 7 is a micro picture of the unfulfilled final judgment that comes in Revelation. And the promised land is a micro picture of what it will look like when we walk in a world that has no more sin, no more evil, no more malice, no more deceit, no more disease, no more strife. Right? And so what do we do with this? The primary, the primary lesson, if you take nothing else away, the real lesson is this. If you remain close to the Lord, even when you're weak and sinful, when you rely and follow him, he will preserve you and wipe all of your enemies away. If you are a person who pursues the Lord's holiness, the Lord will eliminate all of unholiness eventually from this world and preserve you as a display of his glory. Not because of anything that you've done, not because of anything that you deserve, not because you're better than anyone else, but simply because God desires to display his glory through his people in this world. That's, that's the point of Deuteronomy 7. And his actions in Deuteronomy are just a picture of that promised land. There's some other lessons. God is very serious about his holiness and our holiness. If you notice, when they enter the land and destroy everything, 
Right? You have to pay attention to what he calls them to next. What does he say? Don't intermarry and don't keep any of the stuff. Their gold, their altars, all the stuff that's valuable. Like when you, when you step over the bodies of what you've pillaged, don't take any of the spoils. Leave it all. God in Deuteronomy 7 is addressing two things within the heart of man, sex and money. He doesn't want them to get involved with the women or men of the other, other tribes because they will persuade them away from God because God knows that the two biggest things in our lives that move us away from the Lord are sex and money. And so he says he's extra cautious within the context of Deuteronomy 7 to make sure that his people remain holy in those two areas above all else because they're the number one and two ways that people are deceived away from the Lord. Right? It's money or the love of it. Like the possessions, yours, versus what's the Lord's. Right? It's when you think of things of yours and how you can get more and how you can have security and peace on your own terms with your own finances rather than trusting that the Lord will provide for you. Or sex. I'm not just meaning sex and like the activity, but I mean in the sense that we allow our desires to pull us away from godly living. Chances are, if we are living in ways that are ungodly, nine out of ten times they somehow relate to sex or money. A third would be fame, our own name, our legacy, right? We want to somehow puff ourselves up. But sex and money are by far the two largest. And so God here, in this holy war, when he levels them out, keeps them away from the two things that prevent them from being a holy people unto himself. Because that's the ultimate goal. The world should look at the promised land with Israel inhabiting it and say, that is the only one true God. And that, the people that are living in it, are an example of how we are to live godly lives. When we watch them, they seem to be living in a way that things go well with them. They're protected from any outside threat. The Lord preserves them. The Lord provides for them. And in response, they live lives of holiness. God is setting a pattern for all of humanity and all of biblical history until the final judgment and revelation. That's what Deuteronomy 7 is all about. He cares more about the ultimate fate and state of his creation and its people than any individual slice of history. And so when you start to think in that big picture, the wiping out of entire nations becomes something entirely justified. Because God isn't just about your individual comfort in this day and age. God is about the preservation of his holy land for all eternity from this day forward. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Oh, man, Lord, sometimes we open your word and we, we thank you reluctantly. Because there's some stuff that's just hard. Lord, we forgive us when we presume that anytime you appear evil in scriptures, that you somehow aren't the God you say you are. Because, Lord, you are not just a God of love, but you are a God of love and wrath and judgment and kindness and grace and mercy all in one, and you hold them in perfect harmony together. God, for all of us who have experienced evil in this world, we praise you that you are a God who is serious about holiness. We praise you that you are a God who seeks to have us live holy lives, that pushes us towards living the way that we're designed to live, and that you are very serious about obliterating everything that stands in the, in the way of that. Sometimes that's hard for us. Sometimes that seems judgmental and harsh, but the truth is that you are a God who is a God of love, 
He wants to preserve your creation the way that you've created it. God, we praise you that as we see the judgment in passages like Deuteronomy or even around us, we praise you that because of the cross of Christ, we get to escape that judgment. Lord, we confess that we would deserve to perish just alongside of those nations, but for some reason unexplicable to us, you have chosen us to preserve, to protect, to save. And so we gratefully respond and stand in awe of your grace and your mercy to our own lives and selves. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us. We pray that you would continue to pursue holiness in this world until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that you and you alone are Lord, the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, and worthy of our adoration, our love, our praise. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, Amen.